come. Walk down the winding path. Don't mind the spooks and monsters. They stay hidden within the trees. There are mysteries in this world that you need to know, and paranormal truths that need to be told. Come, step up into the caravan, where we share tales of old, as well as new accounts about things you thought only existed in your nightmares. According to folk magic, the crossroads is a place between the worlds, a place where the spirits can be contacted and paranormal events take place, a place where two realms touch, betwixt and between. It is said that when a person has a deep desire to play music, to dance, to throw dice or read tarot, that they are to find themselves in the crossroads, multiple nights in a row either at midnight or just before dawn, this is where he can be met. And it is this man that some call the devil himself who will gift you what you seek. There was one such man, Robert Johnson, whom brought us the devil's music, the root source for an entire generation of blues and rock and roll musicians, a man whose talents were otherworldly. Robert Johnson was born May 8, 1911. Not much is known about this man. Robert played on the street corners and in juke joints and Saturday night dances. He was known to be a competent harmonica player, but an embarrassingly bad guitar player. After the death of his wife and child, it was said he disappeared for a year, only to return with otherworldly musical talents. Now, was this due to staying with and learning from Isaiah Ike Zimmerman, whom was rumored to have learned how to supernaturally play guitar by visiting graveyards at midnight? Or could Robert Johnson have visited the crossroads, where he let the devil himself tune his guitar? All over the world, there are legends about the crossroads, and who it is you can meet, as well what it is that you should do. I will put in a disclaimer here that I, in no way, shape, or form, encourage you to do anything you hear in this episode. Take this as your only warning. Among the devil himself, it is said that you can also meet Papa Legba, or Lord of the Crossroads, he whom governs the threshold to the spirit world. He is also linked to St. Peter. Anthony, and Lazarus. This would enable slaves to continue practicing voodoo while appearing to convert to Catholicism. There is also Hecate, the queen of the crossroads. Older than the devil, Hecate appears in Greek mythology in association with the crossroad legends, also known as the queen of the night. The goddess also looked after entrances, dogs, light, magic, and witchcraft, herbs, poisonous plants, ghosts, and necromancy. Like Papa Legba, Hecate's association with the spiritual world puts her on the boundary, a figure with a foot in both worlds, neither here or there. 
In ancient times, stone pillars at three-way crossroads provided a place for people to leave offerings or food for Hecate. Left at the new moon, such offerings protected those leaving from the evil spirits. I want to welcome you to our first episode of our month-long Lortober celebration. All month, we will explore the darker side as Halloween approaches. We will dance with our vampiric desires, explore the transformations of the full moon, and light our candles to explore the dark tunnels that we normally try to ignore. There are monsters in this world, and what a better time to face them than Lortober. For some, the fears associated with Halloween and the dark months go beyond fake scary ghosts and turns into full-on spiritual fear and warfare, fearing for their very souls as well as the souls of their loved ones. The following is a story by Washington Irving, published in 1824 as part of his Tales of a Traveler collection. The story is similar to a German legend based on the historical Johann George Faust. Faust was a man who, although highly successful, was dissatisfied with his life. A few miles from Boston, in Massachusetts, there is a deep inlet winding several miles into the interior of the country from Charles Bay, and terminating in a thickly wooded swamp or morass. On one side of the inlet is a beautiful dark grove. On the opposite side, the land rises abruptly from the water's edge into a high ridge, on which grow a few scattered oaks of great age and immense size. Under one of these gigantic trees, according to old stories, there was a great amount of treasure buried by Kidd, the pirate. The inlet allowed a facility to bring the money in a boat, secretly, and at night, to the very foot of the hill. The elevation of the place permitted a good lookout to be kept that no one was at hand, while the remarkable trees formed good landmarks by which the place might easily be found again. The old stories add, moreover, that the devil presided at the hiding of the money, and took it under his guardianship, but this, it is well known, he always does with buried treasure, particularly when it has been ill-gotten. Be that as it may, Kidd never returned to recover his wealth, being shortly after seized at Boston, sent out to England, and there hanged for a pirate. About the year 1727, just at the time that earthquakes were prevalent in New England, and shook many tall sinners down upon their knees, there lived near this place a meager, miserly fellow of the name Tom Walker. He had a wife as miserly as himself. They were so miserly that they even conspired to cheat each other. Whatever the woman could lay hands on, she hid away. A hen could not cackle, but she was on the alert to secure the new laid egg. Her husband was continually prying about to detect her secret hordes, and many and fierce were the conflicts that took place about what ought to have been common property. They lived in a forlorn-looking house that stood alone and had an air of starvation. A few straggling saven trees, emblems of sterility, grew near it. No smoke ever curled from its chimney, 
no traveler stopped at its door. A miserable horse, whose ribs were as articulate as the bars of a gridiron, stalked about a field, where a thin carpet of moss, scarcely covering the ragged beds of pudding stone, tantalized and balked his hunger. And sometimes he would lean his head over the fence, look piteously at the passerby, and seem to petition deliverance from the land of famine. The house and its inmates had altogether a bad name. Tom's wife was a tall termagant, fierce of temper, loud of tongue, and strong of arm. Her voice was often heard in wordy warfare with her husband, and his face sometimes showed signs that their conflicts were not confined to words. No one ventured, however, to interfere between them. The lonely wayfarer shrank within himself with the horrid clamor and clapper clawing, eyed the din of discord, askance and hurried on his way, rejoicing, if a bachelor, in his celibacy. One day that Tom Walker had been to a distant part of the neighborhood, he took what he considered a shortcut homeward through the swamp. Like most shortcuts, it was an ill-chosen route. The swamp was thickly grown with great gloomy pines and hemlocks, some of them ninety feet high, which made it dark at noonday and a retreat for all the owls of the neighborhood. It was full of pits and quagmires, partly covered with weeds and mosses, where the green surface often betrayed the traveler into a gulf of black, smothering mud. There were also dark and stagnant pools, the abodes of the tadpole, the bullfrog, the water snake, where the trunks of pines and hemlocks lie half-drowned, half-rotting, looking like alligators sleeping in the mire. Tom had long been picking his way cautiously through his treacherous forest, stepping from tuft to tuft of rushes and roots, which afforded precarious footholds among deep sloughs, or pacing carefully like a cat along the prostrate of trunks of trees, startled now and then by the sudden screaming of the bittern, or the quacking of a wild duck, rising on the wing from some solitary pool. At length he arrived at a firm piece of ground, which ran like a peninsula into the deep bosom of the swamp. It had been one of the strongholds of the Indians during their wars with the first colonists. Here they had thrown up a kind of fort, which they had looked upon as almost impregnable, and had used as a place of refuge for their squaws and children. Nothing remained of the old Indian fort but a few embankments, gradually sinking to the level of a surrounding earth and already overgrown in part by oaks and other forest trees, the foliage of which formed a contrast to the dark pines and hemlocks of the swamps. It was late in the dusk of evening when Tom Walker reached the old fort, and he paused there a while to rest himself. Any one but he would have felt unwilling to linger in this lonely, melancholy place, for the common people had a bad opinion of it. From the stories handed down from the times of the Indian Wars, when it was asserted that the natives held incantations here and made sacrifices to the evil spirit. Tom Walker, however, was not a man to be troubled with any fears of the kind. He reposed himself for some time on the trunk of a fallen hemlock, listening to the boding cry of the tree toad and delving with his walking staff into a mound of black mold at his feet. As he turned up the soil unconsciously, his staff struck against something hard. He raked it out of the vegetable mold, and lo, a cloven skull with a tomahawk buried deep in it lay before him. The rest on the weapon showed the time that had elapsed since this death blow had been given. 
It was a dreary memento of the fierce struggle that had taken place in this last foothold of the native warriors. <laughs> said Tom Walker as he gave it a kick to shake the dirt from it. Let that skull alone. Said a gruff voice. Tom lifted up his eyes and beheld a great man seated directly opposite of him on the stump of a tree. He was exceedingly surprised, having neither heard nor seen anyone approach, and he was still more perplexed on observing, as well as the gathering gloom would permit, that the stranger was neither African American nor Native American, dressed in a rude garb and had a red belt or sash swathed around his body. But his face was neither black nor copper-colored, but swarthy and dingy and begrimed with soot as if he had been accustomed to toil among fires and forges. He had a shock of coarse black hair that stood out from his head in all directions and bore an axe on his shoulder. He scowled for a moment at Tom with a pair of great red eyes. What are you doing on my grounds? Said the man with a hoarse, growling voice. Your grounds. Said Tom with a sneer. No more your grounds than mine. They belong to Deacon Peabody. Deacon Peabody be damned, said the stranger. As I flatter myself, he will be, if he does not look more to his own sins and less to those of his neighbors. Look yonder and see how Deacon Peabody is faring. Tom looked in the direction that the stranger pointed, and beheld one of the great trees, fair and flourishing without, but rotten at the core, and saw that it had been nearly hewn through, so that the first high wind was likely to blow it down. On the bark of the tree was scored the name of Deacon Peabody, an eminent man who had waxed wealthy by driving shrewd bargains with the natives. He now looked around and found most of the tall trees marked with the name of some great man of the colony, and all more or less scored by the axe. The one on which he had been seated, and which had evidently just been hewn down, bore the name of Cronenshield and he recollected a mighty rich man of that name, who made a vulgar display of wealth, which it was whispered he had acquired by buccaneering. He's just ready for burning, said the man with a growl of triumph. You see, I'm likely to have a good stock firewood for winter. But what right have you, said Tom, to cut down Deacon Peabody's timber? The right of a prior claim, said the other. This woodland belonged to me long before your kind put foot upon this soil. And pray, who are you? If I may be so bold, said Tom. Oh, I go by various names. I'm the wild huntsman in some countries, the black miner in others. In this neighborhood, I am known by the name of the black woodsman. I am he to whom the natives consecrated this spot, and in honor of whom they now and then roasted one of your kind by way of sweet-smelling sacrifice. And since the natives have been exterminated by you, I amuse myself by presiding at the persecutions of Quakers and Anabaptists. I am the great patron and prompter of slave dealers and the grandmaster of the Salem witches. The upshot of all which is that, if I mistake not, said Tom sturdily, you are he commonly called Old Scratch. The same, at your service replied the man with a half-civil nod. Such was the opening of this interview, according to the old story. Though it has almost too familiar an air to be credited, one would think that to meet with such a singular personage in this wild, lonely place would have shaken any man's nerves. But Tom was a hard-minded fellow, not easily daunted, 
and he had lived so long with a termagant wife that he did not even fear the devil. It is said that after this commencement, they had a long and earnest conversation together. As Tom returned homeward, the man told him of great sums of money buried by Kid the Pirate under the oak trees on the high ridge, not far from the moors. All these were under his command and protected by his power, so that no one could find them but such as propitiated his favor. These he offered to place within Tom Walker's reach, having conceived an especial kindness for him, but they were to be had only on certain conditions. What these conditions were may easily be surmised, though Tom never disclosed them publicly. They must have been very hard, for he required time to think of them, and he was not a man to stick at trifles when money was in view. When they had reached the edge of the swamp, the stranger paused. What proof have I that all you have been telling me is true? Said Tom. There's my signature, said the man, pressing his finger on Tom's forehead. So saying, he turned off among the thickets of the swamp, and seemed, as Tom said, to go down, down, down into the earth, until nothing but his head and shoulders could be seen, and so on, until he totally disappeared. When Tom reached home, he found the black print of a finger burned, as it were, into his forehead, which nothing could obliterate. The first news his wife had to tell him was the sudden death of Absalom Cronenshield, the rich buccaneer. It was announced in the papers, with the usual flourish, that a great man had fallen in Israel. Extra, extra, read all about it. A great man had fallen in Israel. Tom recollected the tree, which his friend had just hewn down, and which was ready for burning. Let the free booster roast, said Tom. Who cares? He now felt convinced that all he had heard and seen was no illusion. He was not prone to let his wife into his confidence, but as this was an uneasy secret, he willingly shared it with her. All her avarice was awakened at the mention of hidden gold, and she urged her husband to comply with the man's terms and secure what would make them wealthy for life. However, Tom might have felt disposed to sell himself to the devil. He was determined not to do so to oblige his wife. So he flatly refused, out of the mere spirit of contradiction. Many and bitter were the quarrels they had on the subject, but the more she talked, the more resolute was Tom not to be damned to please her. At length, she determined to drive the bargain on her own account, and, if she succeeded, to keep all the gain to herself. Being of the same fearless temper as her husband, she set off for the old fort toward the close of a summer's day. She was many hours absent, when she came back, she was reserved and sullen in her replies. She spoke something of a man, whom she had met about twilight, hewing at the root of a tall tree. He was sulky, however, and would not come to terms. She was to go again with a preparatory offering, but what it was, she forbode to say. The next evening, she set off again for the swamp, with her apron heavily laden. Tom waited and waited for her, but in vain. Midnight came, but she did not make her appearance. Morning, noon, night returned, but still she did not come. Tom now grew uneasy for her safety, as he found she had carried off in her apron the silver teapot and spoons and every portable article of value. Another night elapsed, another morning came, but no wife. In a word, she was never heard of more. 
What was her real fate, nobody knows. In consequence of so many pretending to know, it is one of those facts which have become confounded by a variety of historians. Some asserted that she lost her way among the tangled mazes of the swamp, and sank to some pit or slough. Others, more uncharitable, hinted that she had eloped with the household booty and made off to some other province, while others surmised that the temper had decoyed her into a dismal quagmire, on the top of which her hat was found lying. In confirmation of this, it was said a great man, with an axe on his shoulder, was seen late that very evening, coming out of the swamp, carrying a bundle tied in a check apron, with an air of surly triumph. The most current and probable story, however, observes that Tom Walker grew so anxious about the fate of his wife and his property, he set out at length to seek them both at the fort. During a long summer's afternoon, he searched about the gloomy place, but no wife was to be seen. He called her name repeatedly, but she was nowhere to be heard. The bittern alone responds to his voice as he flew screaming by, or the bullfrog croaked dolefully from a neighboring pool. At length it is said, just in the brown hour of twilight, when the owls began to hoot and the bats to flit about, his attention was attracted by the clamor of carrying crows hovering about a cypress tree. He looked up and beheld a bundle tied in a check apron and hanging in the branches of the tree, with a great vulture perched hard by, as if keeping watch upon it. He leapt with joy, for he recognized his wife's apron, and supposed it to contain the household valuables. Let us get hold of the property, said he, consolingly to himself, and we will endeavor to do without the woman. As he scrambled up the tree, the vulture spread its wide wings and sailed off, screaming, into the deep shadows of the forest. Tom seized the check apron, but woeful sight found nothing but a heart and liver tied up in it. Such, according to this most authentic old story, was all that was to be found of Tom's wife. She had probably attempted to deal with the man as she had been accustomed to deal with her husband, but though a female scold is generally considered a match for the devil, yet in this instance she appears to have had the worst of it. She must have died game, however, for it is said Tom noticed many prints of cloven feet deeply stamped about the tree and found handfuls of hair that looked as if they had been plucked from the coarse black shock of the woodsman. Tom knew his wife's prowess by experience. He shrugged his shoulders as he looked at the signs of fierce clapper climb. Egad, said he to himself. Old Scratch must have had a tough time of it. Tom consoled himself for the loss of his property, with the loss of his wife, for he was a man of fortitude. He even felt something like gratitude toward the dark woodsman who he considered had done him a kindness. He sought, therefore, to cultivate a further acquaintance with him, but for some time without success, the old dark legs played shy, for, whatever people may think, he is not always to be had for the calling. He knows how to play his cards when pretty sure of his game. At length, it is said, when delay had whetted Tom's eagerness to the quick and prepared him to agree to anything rather than not gain the promised treasure, he met the dark man one evening in his usual woodsman's dress, with his axe on his shoulder, sauntering along the swamp and humming a tune. He affected to receive Tom's advances with great indifference, made brief replies, and went on humming his tune. By degrees, however, Tom brought him to business, and they began to haggle about the terms of which the former was to have the pirate's treasure. There was one condition which need not be mentioned. 
being generally understood in all cases where the devil grants favors. But there were others about which, though of less importance, he was inflexibly obstinate. He insisted that the money found through his means should be employed in his service. He proposed, therefore, that Tom should employ it in the slave traffic, that is to say, that he should fit out a slave ship. This, however, Tom resolutely refused. He was bad enough in all conscience, but the devil himself could not tempt him to turn slave trader. Finding Tom so squeamish on this point, he did not insist upon it, but proposed instead that he should turn usurer. The devil, being extremely anxious for the increase of usurers, looking upon them as his peculiar people. To this no objections were made, for it was just to Tom's taste. You shall open a broker's shop in Boston next month, said the dark man. I'll do it tomorrow if you wish, said Tom Walker. You shall lend money at 2% a month. Egad, I'll charge four, replied Tom Walker. You shall extort bonds, foreclose mortgages, drive the merchants to bankruptcy. I'll drive them to the devil, cried Tom Walker. You are the user for my money, said Dark Legs with delight. When will you want the rhino? This very night. Done, said the devil. Done, said Tom Walker. So they shook hands and struck a bargain. A few days' time saw Tom Walker seated behind his desk in a counting house in Boston. His reputation for a ready-moneyed man, who would lend money out for a good consideration, soon spread abroad. Everybody remembers the time of Governor Belcher, when money was particularly scarce. It was a time of paper credit. The country had been deluged with government bills. The famous land bank had been established. There had been a rage for speculating. The people had run mad with schemes for new settlements, for building cities in the wilderness. Land jobbers went about with maps of grants and townships and Eldorados, lying nobody knew where but which everybody was ready to purchase. In a word, the great speculating fever which breaks out every now and then in the country had raged to an alarming degree, and everybody was dreaming of making sudden fortunes from nothing. As usual, the fever had subsided, the dream had gone off, and the imaginary fortunes with it. The patients were left in doleful plight, and the whole country resounded with the consequence cry of hard times. At this propitious time of public distress, Tom Walker set up as usurer in Boston. His door was soon thronged by customers, the needy and adventurous, the gambling speculator, the dreaming land jobber, the thriftless tradesman, the merchant with cracked credit, in short, everyone driven to raise money by desperate means and desperate sacrifices hurried to Tom Walker. Thus Tom was the universal friend to the needy and acted like a friend in need. That is to say, he always exacted good pay and security. In proportion to the distress of the applicant was the hardness of his terms. He accumulated bonds and mortgages, gradually squeezed his customers closer and closer, and sent them at length dry as a sponge from his door. In this way he made money hand over hand, became a rich and mighty man, and exalted his cocked hat upon change. He built himself, as usual, a vast house out of ostentation, but left the greater part of it unfinished and unfurnished out of parsimony. He even set up a carriage in the fullness of his vainglory, though he nearly starved the horses which drew it, 
and as the ungreased wheels groaned and screeched on the axle trees, you would have thought you heard the souls of the poor debtors he was squeezing. As Tom waxed old, however, he grew thoughtful. Having secured the good things of this world, he began to feel anxious about those of the next. He thought with regret of the bargain he had made with his dark friend, and set his wits to work to cheat him out of the conditions. He became, therefore, all of a sudden, a violent churchgoer. He prayed loudly and strenuously, as if heaven were to be taken by force of lungs. Indeed, one might always tell when he had sinned most during the week by the clamor of his Sunday devotion. The quiet Christians who had been modestly and steadfastly traveling Zionward were struck with self-reproach at seeing themselves so suddenly outstripped in their career by this new-made convert. Tom was as rigid and religious as in money matters. He was a stern supervisor and censorer of his neighbors, and seemed to think every sin entered up to their own account became a credit on his own side of the page. He even talked of the expediency of reviving the persecution of Quakers and Anabaptists. In a word, Tom's zeal became as notorious as his riches. Still, in spite of all this strenuous attention to forms, Tom had a lurking dread that the devil, after all, would have his due. That he might not be taken unawares, therefore, it is said he always carries a small Bible in his coat pocket. He had also a great folio Bible on his counting house desk, and would frequently be found reading it when people called on business. On such occasions, he would lay his green spectacles in the book to mark the place where he turned around to drive some unserious bargain. Some say that Tom grew a little crack-brained in his old days, and that, fancying his end approaching, he had his horse new shod, saddled and bridled and buried with his feet uppermost, because he supposed that at the last day the world would be turned upside down, in which case he should find his horse standing ready for mounting and he was determined at the worst to give his old friend a run for it. This, however, is probably a mere old wives' fable. If he really did take such a precaution, it was totally superfluous, at least so says the authentic old legend, which closes his story in the following manner. One hot summer afternoon in the dog days, just as a terrible black thunder gust was coming up, Tom sat in his counting house and his white linen cap and India silk morning gown. He was on the point of foreclosing a mortgage, by which he would complete the ruin of an unlucky land speculator for whom he had professed the greatest friendship. The poor land jobber begged him to grant a few months' indulgence. Tom had grown testy and irritated and refused another delay. My family will be ruined and brought upon the parish, said the land jobber. Charity begins at home, replied Tom. I must take care of myself in these hard times. You have made so much money out of me, said the speculator. Tom lost his patience and his piety. The devil take me, said he, if I have made a farthing. Just then, there were three loud knocks at the street door. He stepped out to see who was there. A dark man was holding a black horse, which neighed and stamped with impatience. Tom, you're come for, said the fellow gruffly. Tom shrank back, but too late. He had left his little Bible at the bottom of his coat pocket, and his big Bible on the desk buried under the mortgage he was about to foreclose. Never was sinner taken more unawares. The dark man whisked him like a child into the saddle, 
gave the horse the lash and away he galloped, with Tom on his back in the midst of the thunderstorm. The clerks stuck their pins behind their ears and stared after him from the windows. Away went Tom Walker, dashing down the streets, his white cap bobbing up and down, his morning gown fluttering in the wind, and his steed striking fire out of the pavement at every bound. When the clerks turned to look for the man, he had disappeared. Tom Walker never returned to foreclose the mortgage. A countryman who lived on the border of the swamp reported that in the height of the thunder gust, he had heard a great clattering of hooves and a howling along the road, and running to the window caught sight of a figure such as I have described. On a horse that galloped like mad across the fields, over the hills, and down into the black hemlock swamp toward the old fort, and that shortly after a thunderbolt falling in that direction seemed to set the whole forest ablaze. The good people of Boston shook their heads and shrugged their shoulders, but had been so much accustomed to witches and goblins and tricks of the devil in all kinds of shapes from the first settlement of the colony that they were not so much horror-struck as might have been expected. Trustees were appointed to take charge of Tom's effects. There was nothing, however, to administer upon. On searching his coffers, all his bonds and mortgages were reduced to cinders. In place of gold and silver, his iron chest was filled with chips and shavings. Two skeletons lay in his stables instead of his half-starved horses, and the very next day his great house took fire and was burned to the ground. Such was the end of Tom Walker and his ill-gotten wealth. Let all gripping money brokers lay this story to heart. The truth of it is not to be doubted. The very hole under the oak trees wherein he dug kids' money is to be seen to this day, and the neighboring swamp and old fort are often haunted in stormy nights by a figure on horseback. In morning gown and white cap, which is doubtless the troubled spirit of the usurer, in fact, the story has resolved itself into a proverb, and is the origin of that popular saying so prevalent throughout New England of... The Devil and Tom Walker And although most tales end with the devil coming to take what is owed to him, there is one such story when he was cheated out of his bounty. This is how the cobbler cheated the devil. It chanced that once upon a time long years ago, in the days when strange things used to happen in the world, and the devil himself used sometimes to walk about in it in a bare-faced fashion, to the distraction of all good and bad folk alike. He came to a very small town where he resolved to stay a while to play some of his tricks. How it was, whether the people were bitter or were worse than he expected to find them, whether they would not give way to him, or whether they went beyond him and outwitted him, I don't know, and so cannot say. But sure it is that in a short while he became terribly angry with the folk, and at length was so disgusted that he threatened he would make them repent their treatment of him. For he would punish them in a manner which should show them his power. With that he flew off in a fury, and the folk, knowing with whom they had to deal, were very sad, thinking what terrible thing would overtake them, and at their wits' ends to imagine how they might manage to escape the claws of the evil one. Accordingly, it was decided to call a meeting of the townsfolk, to which all, old and young, should come to deliver their opinion as to the best course to be pursued. 
only those too old to walk, the sick and the foolish, being not called to the council. Very many different courses were proposed, and while these were being debated, a man rushed into the hall where the council was held and informed them that their enemy was coming, for he had himself seen him making his way to the town, bearing on his shoulder a stone almost big enough to bury the place under it. He reported that the devil was yet a long way off, for his lord hampered him sadly, as he could not travel fast. What to do the counselors did not know, when suddenly there came amongst them a poor cobbler, whom they had forgot to call to the meeting, for he was, indeed, looked upon as only half-witted. I will go and meet him, said he, and stop him coming here. You stop him, cried they all. It's mad you must be to think of it. I'll go all the same, said the cobbler, and without saying a word more, he goes out and begins to make ready for his journey. First of all, he collected together as many old boots and shoes as he could find, and when he had got them all in a bundle, he finds out that the man who had seen the devil coming on, and inquired of him the way he should go to meet him. The man told him the road, and the cobbler set out. He walked and walked and walked, till at last he came to the devil, who was sitting by the roadside resting himself and trying to get cool, for the day was warm, and he was nearly worn out with carrying the big rock which lay beside him. Do you know such and such a place? asks he of the man, naming the town he would be at. I do indeed, says the man, for I ought to, seeing I have lived in its neighborhood these many years, and have only left there to travel here. And how many days have you been getting here? asked the devil anxiously, for he had hoped he was near the end of his journey. Oh, days and days, replied the man. See here, and he opens his bundle of old boots that he had ready. See here, says he, these are the boots I have worn out on the hard road and coming from the place here. Have you indeed, says the devil, looking at them amazed, little thinking that the man was lying as he showed him pair after pair, all in holes and treads. Well, indeed, it must be a long way off. And he looks around him, and then at the rock, and thinks what a terrible long way he has had to bring it, and begins to doubt whether, after all, since he's still got so far to go, it's worth all the trouble. If it had been near, says he, it would have been a different thing, and I would have shown them what it is to treat me as they did. But as it's so far off, it's another matter, and I don't think it's worth the trouble. So he just takes up the rock and flings it aside in a field, and goes off back again. So the cobbler came home, and told all the townsfolk what he had done, and how he had cheated the devil. And I can assure you that they all admired his cleverness, and the joke of tricking the devil as he had nor did they allow him to lose in consequence of missing his day's work. So what would you do? Would you travel to the crossroads and stand before him, hoping to strike a deal? Would you sell your soul to be the greatest musician, writer, or lover? circles round my head Leaves go up in flames of Flames of red. Worry ties me to the ground. Feathers fall without a sound, without a sound. Burn on, dear flame, burn on. There's a light in the fire. 
Black hawk. Ca- 